Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's discussion on uh, uh, the changing uh, nature of ice and uh, climate change, uh, photographer James Balog. We're going to repeat our conversation with him. Uh, some unfinished business from a program last week. You'll recall we talked with panelists who had uh, participated on something called the Southern Utah Air Quality Forum. And we talked about air quality. We also talked about alternative energy. And Farland responded. He said, please do not dismiss solar power as being unreliable. Quote, sometimes doesn't, it doesn't work, end quote. Thousands of uh, people use only solar without any issues, including me. I listen to your station with electricity 100% powered by solar power and have no problems. People who depend on Rocky Mountain power have power outages in storm situations, etc. I'm not affected. This is in response to Tom Williams saying, quote, but it doesn't always work, end quote, on Access Utah. Uh, so I uh, emailed uh, Farland. We had a, a nice exchange. Uh, I wanted to thank him for his comment. I also wanted to defend myself. I, I was just quoting what I've heard the arguments against solar power uh, being. I don't necessarily subscribe to that point of view. Uh, Farland was very gracious, uh, emailed back with some uh, other very interesting information. Uh, Farland says, thanks for responding. And uh, he says, I live in uh, Castle Valley, Utah, and part of the community does not have any power access, so everyone has solar. People have beautiful big houses. Even the local electrician lives 100% solar. Thanks, says Farland. Thank you to you, Farland, for responding. Keep that conversation coming at upraccess at gmail.com. Now to a conversation from a couple of years ago with James Balog. He's a photographer who uh, set out on uh, something called Extreme Ice Expedition. Uh, You'll hear about this. It's uh, featured in a documentary film called Chasing Ice. This is one of the most memorable uh, programs I've uh, been involved with. We want to uh, uh, repeat this for you uh, today. James Balog. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the spring of 2005, acclaimed environmental photographer James Balog headed to the Arctic on assignment for the National Geographic. The goal was to capture images to help tell the story of the Earth's changing climate. Even with a scientific upbringing, Balog had been a skeptic about climate change, but that first trip north opened his eyes to the biggest story in human history, sparked a challenge within him that would put his career and his very well-being at risk. The documentary film Chasing Ice is the story of one man's mission to change the tide of history by gathering undeniable evidence of our changing planet. Within months of that first trip to Iceland, uh, the photographer conceived the boldest expedition of his life, the Extreme Ice Survey. With a band of young adventurers, uh, Balog began deploying revolutionary time-lapse cameras across the brutal Arctic to capture a multi-year record of the world's changing glaciers. And we're uh, happy to welcome into the studios today James Balog. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good morning. So, as I understand it from the film, uh, you set out to be, you studied as a geomorphologist, you studied geology. Yeah, when I was a grad student at the University of Colorado, I studied uh, the, the science of how nature uh, shapes the landscape, how these sculptures that we see out there, whether it's in the canyons of Utah or the mountains. Uh, or uh, or river valleys, how all of that came to be through the uh, forces of natural process. Then you decided you didn't, didn't want to live the life of a scientist. Well, I wasn't cut out for statistics, and I could yeah. see even back then that things were going towards statistical analysis. And, and I'm not a I'm not a 
statistician. Right. So I wanted to I wanted to work with photography, which mm-hmm. I had had a very serious uh, advanced amateur interest in. I thought mm-hmm. photography would be a good way to to look at nature and to give me a chance to explore the world. I've had a charmed life. I mean, the places I've gotten to go and the things I've gotten to experience are just amazing because of photography. Yeah. And a uh, certain point here, as we referenced in the beginning, uh, you got this assignment from National Geographic that, that turned into, I think, one of the uh, best-selling issues of, you know, of, of several years. Yeah, it actually started out with an assignment from the New Yorker magazine, oh, and I see. then it turned into a National Geographic project. <clears throat> and by the end of the editing process on the, on the Geographic's work, uh, I cooked up this idea for putting out time-lapse cameras and going back on a multi-year repeat basis to look at how these landscapes were changing. Well, let's hear the trailer from the film now. Get us into the, the, uh, the film, which uh, features uh, photographer James Bailock. I'm on the phone with Jim on one of our regular check-ins. Like, Jim, nothing's happening. It's starting, Adam, I think. Adam, it's starting. Right? Look at that. It all started in Iceland. I think I'm so certain to get wet, I'll take my boots off. I never imagined that you could see glaciers this big disappearing in such a short time. There's a powerful piece of history that's unfolding in these pictures, and I have to go back. The initial goal was to put out 25 cameras for three years, shoot every hour as long as it was daylight, that would show you how the landscape was changing. Oh, this is the way to travel, my friend. Putting really delicate electronics in the harshest conditions on the planet. It's not the nicest environment for technology. I do not want to go any lower than this. It's just bottomless. I'm going out here on this broken fin, and I assume it won't collapse. Every once in a while, you get the same. What were you thinking? Maybe that office job wasn't so bad. This thing is loose. Rock, it's not working. God, all of that obsession means nothing if it doesn't work. Just be careful. Don't get too close to the edge, all right? This is terrifying. This knee has had two surgeries, and it really could use a third. He goes to that point where he can't anymore, and sometimes he's going further. We have low operation engine number two. stuff happening right now. Okay, onward. This is the memory of the landscape. That landscape is gone. It may never be seen again in the history of civilization, and it's stored right here. There's the trailer from the award-winning film Chasing Ice, which features uh, photographer James Baylog. Uh, he uh, founded the Extreme Ice Survey. So this is a pretty ambitious project, and you could hear the dangers involved in setting these 25 cameras up. Where did you set the cameras up? That first year, 2007, uh, they, they were deployed in uh, Greenland, Iceland, uh, Montana, Alaska, I guess I guess that's it. Yeah, yeah. And, and we had some sites uh, right from the beginning that we were visiting in uh, in Bolivia periodically in the Andes. And this was to uh, to track glaciers. 
Yeah, right? the idea was was this. Um, as the climate warms and or precipitation patterns change, uh, the glaciers recede. Uh, that's a well-demonstrated physical fact. It's, you know, you, you, every human being understands that from the time they're about six months old. You know, mom puts an ice cube in your hand, the heat of your body melts the ice, the ice goes away. You know, uh, at, at a much grander level, that's what's going on with the glaciers. So as the climate changes, the glaciers see that for us. They respond to the regional uh, air and moisture conditions around them. So I thought, well, let's let's watch how they're changing uh, on a short-term basis. You know, the science and some of the other uh, sequences of photography seem to have been telling a story about how ice was changing over decades, if not, you know, multiple centuries, if not multiple millennia as well. And I saw this first glacier in Iceland in uh, 05 and 06, and that, that was changing in a matter of months. So I thought, well, if that's changing over such a short time span, that says something different to the human psyche than decades and centuries worth of change. That, that's, a, that's a time frame you can grasp in your heart and your mind. You know, you remember where you were taking uh, little Susie and Johnny for soccer practice in the spring. And when you can show people a picture of what's disappeared in October— they get that. That's, mm-hmm. that's in your human time frame. So that's what I wanted to express. And you, you, you say you went into this a skeptic, you, that you thought humans can't possibly be causing change on this scale. Yeah, yeah. I, um, look, I've been around a lot of <clears throat> environmental issues for my, my whole adult life. And as the climate change story was, uh, was gathering steam over the 70s and 80s, I was involved with, with some other environmental subjects in, in a deep and passionate way with endangered wildlife and with deforestation and, uh, and other issues. And I thought, you know, geez, it just seems like there's another uh, eco-crisis that somebody's beating the table about it. about every two years there's a new one and my first reflex was oh god this is just another kind of activist cause that's being that's being uh, perhaps exaggerated um, but more importantly i thought that the story was about computer modeling and statistics and uh, I, uh, I i i i know that computer models are only as good as the data you put into them and way back when uh, the computer modeling of these th- this kind of subject was pretty sketchy. Now it's very, very, very good. But back in the, let's say, 80s, it was much sketchier. And, but m- even more importantly, I had sort of this built-in human resistance to recognizing the possibility that the combined weight of our 7 billion people species, uh, 7 billion individuals of our species, could actually change the basic physics and chemistry of this giant planet. I, I just didn't think that was possible. So I, for those reasons, I dismissed climate change until I had an opportunity about uh, 20 years ago to start looking more seriously at the knowledge that had been collected by the scientific community, and it opened my eyes to the fact that indeed this was real. It was not Mm. about computers, and it was not about belief and projection and all the rest of it. It was a concrete physical fact. Mm. 
There's a phrase that uh, struck me, and we heard it in the trailer. Um, there's a scene where you're, and we're skipping ahead a, a in the story a little bit here, but I want to bring it up here. Um, you, you, you take out the memory chip from the, from the camera, you hold it up. And, and speaking of the recession of the, uh, the, you know, the retreat of the glacier, you say, this is the memory of the landscape. So it's, it's right here that that glacier is, that part of the glacier is gone. It's only on that memory chip. Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was a moment of genuine revelation. That had never occurred to me before. I had never experienced that before. The cameraman caught that live as the thought kind of came blasting into my head. We had been at that glacier uh, a couple of months before, and now we're coming back for the first time to retrieve the the digital record that was stored on the camera. And I pulled that little, you know, one-inch square thing out of the back of the camera. It was like this lightning bolt hit my head. My goodness. Okay, what's happened to this glacier in the past couple of months, the only record we have of it is here in this digital memory. Mm -hmm. And that was like magic. I had never, never really appreciated how powerful photography was as a memory preservation device as I did at that moment. And, of course, you hear about that in, in school and in reading that, yes, photography is good for preserving memory. Okay, so what? Uh, we, we do that snapshots of our families and so on. But the, the uh, memory-preserving capability of photography is so much more profound and existentially broad than just family snapshots. Mm. And, and that's what it did for me right then and there. It's like history has passed in the preceding two months. And this big feature of the landscape is gone. And now the camera has held it for us. And here it is. That's the last surviving record of that landscape. Mm. Let's hear clip number two here. This, this talks, this will continue this discussion of glacier photography, uh, you're comparing to portraits. This really is a portrait of, of the landscape. Yeah, it's sort of like doing a portrait of, of people. You know, uh, Richard Avedon and Irving Penn spent their entire careers doing portraits of faces essentially and found endless variation and endless beauty and endless magic in those faces and for me that's the same thing as what's going on here you know you feel the this tension between this huge enduring power of these glaciers and their fragility you know they came from a great and impassive place and now they're just they're crumbling into these tiny little blocks of ice going off into the ocean. It's crazy. My first trip to Greenland, we were setting up one of the cameras at Store Glacier. When we got there, we saw this really bizarre looking peninsula just kind of perched out at the front of this, the calving face of the glacier where the glacier ends. This thing is going to break off all summer long, man. Look at this. Those peninsulas are, are just a matter of days, at, the, at most of a couple of weeks. But It was huge. It was five football fields long, 1,500 feet long, and about 300 feet above the surface of the water. As we're setting up the cameras, we also set up a video camera and had it pointed right there at that peninsula, and we just, we just had it rolling, just in case. Oh my God, a giant crack just formed. Yep. 
got that whole island is going away. There it goes, man. We were there for just a one hour period of time and absurdly somehow fortunately captured an event that seldom is caught on film. This is really big stuff happening right under our noses right now. But I feel like time is clicking, you know, and we need to get these cameras out here. So that's uh, James Baylog, uh, and that's in the film Chasing Ice, uh, which uh, chronicles James Baylog's uh, extreme ice survey, whereby they put uh, cameras out in various uh, places, um, Iceland, Greenland, Alaska, Montana, and uh, recorded the retreat of the glaciers. So uh, first of all, the, the, you hear the sound of the calving glacier. It's, it, it gives you a sense of the massive scale. Yeah, it, it's it's huge. These are big apocalyptic events. There's an enormous amount of sound, and frankly, we, if we had had uh, some different equipment, we would have had an even more resonant uh, record of, of of the way some of these things sounded. But it still is it's intense. It's like fighter jets uh, zooming over the fjord over your head. It's it it's quite loud, quite noisy. And before I forget, I want to mention that uh, Chasing Ice is uh, is watchable on Netflix and okay. on iTunes, and right. it shows up episodically on the National Geographic channel. But Netflix is the best way uh, to watch it at good resolution. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very, very, very exciting to be out in these places. These are spectacular, fabulous, amazing landscapes. And since the film was made, We've deployed cameras in the uh, Austrian Alps, uh, in Antarctica, uh, and on South Georgia, this uh, remote island east of Argentina out in the South Atlantic in some incredibly spectacular places. And as we uh, sit here today, we have 41 cameras out there clicking away every half hour around the clock as long as it's daylight. Mm. And in that clip, you said that you feel like the clock is ticking. And part of that, I, I get the feeling... From the film that uh, it's you want to get the word out to people you, you you give these presentations like the one you're giving tonight yeah there's a sense of urgency you know this is um, you know I have to admit that what I, I started uh, looking at this field in 2005 10 years ago and at the time 2005 six seven people were talking about climate change is this this beast that's lumbering up over the horizon and boy it's going to be a really big deal in 2040, 60, 80, the year 2100, you know, this is something we have to start getting uh, prepared for on behalf of those people. And since about 2007, the whole psychological and physical context has changed. And suddenly the light bulbs are going off uh, all over the world in people's minds saying, my gosh, this isn't something for decades out. This is right now. This is urgent. This is happening now. And I was aware of that from the standpoint of the ice, that the retreat is happening now. This is not something for 2050. Or, uh, this, this is happening at the moment. Mm. So I need to get on it and get these pictures in the can because whatever exists on the ground in April is not going to be there in October. Mm. I need to do it now. 
And you said before we're we're used to thinking of these things in geologic terms. You know, it's of, of eons, millennia, at least thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, and, we and, um, and this is April to you know the six months time. You you come back and that's right. And the glacier is retreated. And sometimes it's even in days. It's not even in weeks or months. Yeah, there's there's a basic um, human tendency because of the fact that our lives are relatively short on average. You know, seventy five or eighty years in in the United States, and the expanse of Earth time is so enormous. You think that, oh, in my little years, I can't see what's going on. You know, there can't be that much action going on during my years. But in fact, one of the great uh, revelations of modern Earth science is that a lot of these changes, and it's not just about glaciers, but a lot of very important changes happen in these, in these very fast pulses of activity right around us. So things can happen very quickly in just a decade of your life or just a few years of your life. Um, and in a very specific way, in the ice sciences, this is called the, the study of the cryosphere, C-R-Y-O sphere. Uh, in, in the world of ice science, it's been realized with increasing intensity over the past years and decades that some of these big climate swings have happened in a matter of a very few years in the past. These changes from one state of the ice age to a much warmer state or from a warmer state into a colder state, these things don't necessarily happen over centuries worth of slow incremental change. They can happen in a matter of a few years and you have this profound change of state in the natural system in the basically uh, the blink of an eye. Let's take a break uh, when we come back more, much more to talk about. Um, we're, we're hearing clips from the film Chasing Ice, which uh, features uh, photographer James Baylog and his extreme ice survey. We'll hear more clips from the film. We'll talk more about retreating glaciers, what that means, uh, and uh, talk about climate change as well. More following the break. Did you know that parental involvement in youth sports programs can strengthen family relationships? Research on the impact of parental involvement in their children's sports participation, the role of sport participation on family relationships and parent-child interaction, and the outcomes of parent support and pressure in youth and adolescent sports contexts have been highlighted in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Chicago Tribune. This research is also being used by youth sport leagues, administrators, and parents to build effective sport programs that support youth development. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Next time on Living on Earth, call to heal our communities by healing the land beneath them. Just like our own health needs to be constantly renewed and constantly restored, we need to treat our relationship to the land that way. I'm Steve Kerwood, and it's writer Gary Paul Navin, next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. 
UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2016. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, photographer James Baylog. He's had many assignments. Uh, one assignment in particular, uh, really, uh, he says he fell in love with ice. Talk about that. And uh, led to a, a big project. It's called the Extreme Ice Survey. Uh, now, you say, James Baylog, 41 cameras around the world. Is it? Um, and uh, these are clicking off photographs every so often. Every half hour of um, daylight, yep. Uh, of glaciers around the, around the world. And this is uh, in dramatic uh, pictures, uh, time-lapse photography. You can, you can see the retreat of the glaciers. And uh, James Baylog's uh, purpose... Well, your purpose there is to, I guess, conclusively prove climate change. What is your purpose? I, I, I didn't set out to prove anything. I just wanted to uh, create a visual record. You know, I'm a, uh, there's, a, there's a science dimension to what I do. Fundamentally, I'm a visual artist, and I wanted to reflect how the world around me was changing through these, uh, this art form that I, that I knew how to do. So I wanted to represent that. And frankly, when we started the project, we really had no idea uh, what we were going to see. I, I mean, literally, my best guess was that in the first three years, we might see a little bit of change. Mm -hmm. And then after some of the cameras had been out just for a matter of a couple months, we saw huge amounts of ice disappearing. It was really, truly a shock. We really didn't expect that to happen, nor did any of our funders, nor did any of the scientists. It was really, truly an eye-popping surprise. We're hearing clips from the film Chasing Ice, which chronicles Sir James Baylog's extreme ice uh, uh, survey. So you, uh, you said early in the film, you said you fell in love with ice. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I've been a I've been a technical climber and alpinist for for a good bit of my adult life. I'm getting a bit too old. My knees can't take a, a lot of the abuse that I used to put the system through. But uh, I've been climbing uh, icicles since uh, since it was a very very radical and new sport back in the uh, the early '70s. Uh, a lot of big rock cliffs, um, and uh, so I've been around these steep and wild places. And I always loved to be on glaciers. It's a, the colors are incredibly beautiful, at least in some places. Some places it's kind of ugly. It looks like a tailings pile at a mine. Uh, but in other places, you get this amazing light that comes through the ice and turns the ice into these uh, fabulous uh, sapphire, emerald color, sometimes black uh, the shapes are amazing. The shapes are always changing, and I'll and I'll reflect some of that in the in the show tonight. You'll see a, a lot more of that than you actually see in the film, um, and also the the solitude and remoteness and tranquility and serenity of these these places where ice lives. I've always found that very uplifting for me internally. I, I love the quiet. 
especially a place like the Antarctic, uh, the big Antarctic glaciers or the Greenland ice sheet. Um, you know, you talk about serenity. You know, it's just like the Utah desert on a really quiet spring night. You know, you're down in the canyons. There's no electromagnetic stuff coming your way. There's no cell phones going off. It's just stars and rock and tranquility. It's the same thing out on the ice. Let's hear another clip from the film Chasing Ice. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, let's see, number one. This is clip number one. There was a real sense of the glacier just coming to an end and like this old, decrepit man just, you know, falling into the earth and dying. It was very evocative, very emotional. As a guy who's been mountaineering for basically my whole adult life, uh, someone who's trained in uh, earth sciences, I never imagined that you could see features this big disappearing in such a short period of time. But when I did, when I saw that, I realized, my God, there's a powerful piece of history that's unfolding in these pictures, and I have to go back to those same spots. So I set up a whole bunch of camera positions around that glacier where I would just go back and shoot a single frame. You know, one in April, one in October, and we would just see how the glacier changed in six months. Right there where Spab is, stand right there. That's exactly where the ice was, right there. Right over? Uh, correct. This is where that glacier had changed so much that, I'm not kidding, for like three hours we stood there looking at the prints of six months ago, looking at the glacier going, we must be wrong, we can't be in the right places. That's, uh, that's James Balog from the film uh, Chasing Ice. Uh, so give me, uh, give me a sense of the scale of, the, of, the, of the, how, how far these uh, glaciers are, are retreating. Well, you know, it, it, it varies. It, uh, they're individual creatures. They behave in different ways at different times in different regions. Um, and it's not uniform, not by a long shot. Um, in a place like Greenland, some of the big uh, <clears throat> glaciers that come out of the interior and drop in, in through these fjords into the ocean, they can lose uh, billions of tons of ice in a matter of an hour or two if you have a big break-off event, which is known as a calving. Um, for example, in, in the film, there's uh, one, of, one of these calving events that breaks off a block of ice that's basically like the lower tip of Manhattan, and it's um, a couple thousand feet thick, this block of ice that just breaks off in sequence and rolls over and collapses and turns into icebergs in the ocean. In other cases, uh, a glacier that terminates on land, you might see it retreat uh, a few dozen yards or a few hundred yards in a season, which is a lot of retreat. It, it, as you sit here in, the, des in, the, in the, the valley of Logan, Utah, you go a few hundred yards, it's not a big deal. But when you see the volume of ice that's involved with a retreat, even of, of that scale, it's, uh, it's quite shocking. Um, I just came back a, a week and a half ago from the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, where, <clears throat> as we all know from the famous Hemingway novel, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, um, 
that mountain had been coated with ice in the first part of the 20th century. The whole upper part was a, was an ice cap, and uh, it was fabled throughout um, Africa and European and American literature because of that. And now it's rapidly deglaciating. Uh, a good bit of the ice is gone. The majority of the ice actually is gone. And I wanted to see what that ice looked like and felt like because the ice on the top of Kilimanjaro has shapes that are unlike the shapes of ice anywhere else. Um, and so I, I wanted to make my own little visual record of that and touch that stuff while it still existed and touch it as part of this project. Mm. So you, you, were, you went up and touched it? I went up and touched it, absolutely. You know, it's up at uh, almost 19,000 feet in the summit crater and uh, took us um, about uh, 10 days to acclimatize and get up there and be in a position so that we could camp successfully at, uh, well, our campsite was at 18,800 feet. And you don't just run up there from sea level and feel good. If you mm -hmm. did, you'd probably get pulmonary edema and mm -hmm. die. So we had to acclimatize, get accustomed to it, get up there. And um, there were some extraordinary pictures that came out of that. We're talking with James Baylog, a photographer. He is the founder of the Extreme Ice Survey. This, this, you can you compare this uh, competing the retreating glacier in that previous clip to a dying man. You, you know, you're going up Kilimanjaro to touch this glacier, which may not be with us uh, much longer. It has a feeling of elegy. I don't know. Is it, uh, there's, there's a sadness, tinge of sadness. Well, there certainly is. I, I can't deny it. There's a tinge of, a tinge of sadness, melancholia to all of this. Um, and yet it's also a recognition of natural process. You know, we, we humans are so anchored in our in our existences, uh, and we struggle, especially in Western society, struggle with the concept of dying and not being here. Um, and, and to the extent that there's sadness in, in the pictures, it's connected with that. But the, you know, the great existential truth we all have to somehow learn is that indeed we are mortal and that our deaths are part of our lives. And as sad as not being here or with our families might be, uh, mortality is is part of the job that we have as as uh, as people. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm bearing witness to mortality in these pictures. But on a, in a deeper way, I, I've come to realize I'm bearing witness to time. I'm marking the flow of historic time in these pictures, and that's. Um, that's something that never stops. It's been going on on this earth for four, four billion plus years, and time is always marching on. And, and I'm taking a slice out of that current of uh, current. I'm mixing my metaphors. I'm taking a piece. Uh, I'm, I'm taking some molecules out of the current of time and looking at them and marking what there is now that there won't be in the future. Let's take another break, and we'll come back with James Baylog. He's a award-winning photographer, and uh, his his big project is the Extreme Ice Survey, and that's chronicled in the film Chasing Ice, from which we're hearing clips uh, today. More following the break. 
Composer Sean Solomon was in New York City in 2011 when New York became the sixth state to recognize same-sex marriage. He documented his reflections and experiences through music. Coming up, the PT debut of composer Sean Solomon, a piece called June Dances, on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive Mug. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu. When Nathaniel Mary Quinn was 15 years old, his family abandoned him. When everyone headed back to have lunch, I had my Walkman, and I would play Al Green's How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. Today, he's a celebrated painter. The origins of creativity, next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2016. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with photographer James Baylog. In uh, 2005, uh, he was uh, he headed to the Arctic on an assignment from National Geographic, capture the images to tell the story of uh, Earth's changing uh, climate. And uh, that led to an ambitious project, the Extreme Ice Survey where he, uh, he thought, and he actually did, I'll set up a bunch of cameras around the world, we'll uh, photograph glaciers, and, uh, and we'll witness the retreat of these, these glaciers. It's, it's happening uh, all over the world. So let's uh, hear another clip from this film, Chasing Ice. This is uh, number three. You're no longer just a human being walking around in the regular world. You're a human animal striding around on the surface of a planet that's out in the middle of a galaxy. We as a culture, we're forgetting that we are actually natural organisms and that we have this very, very deep connection and contact with nature. You can't divorce civilization from nature. We totally depend on it. That is a clip from Chasing Ice, which chronicles James Baylog's Extreme Ice Survey. We have a caller, uh, Jeff in Logan. Jeff, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I'm going to ask the, the same cliche question that is asked at everything ever, but I listen to everything that is being said, and I, uh, I want to help. I want to do something. I want to be active. I want to be a part of the solution to help stop or prevent the problem, but I have no idea how to even begin. <laughs> and so I guess my question would be then, how, how, how does uh, just, you know, a normal guy <laughs> that, that doesn't have connections to National Geographic or 
to some big organization. How do how do I get involved enough that I can actually help make a change of any kind? That's a great question, and I'll address that tonight as well. But the the basic answer uh, is to, you know, and this is also a cliche. Um, <clears throat> You think globally, but you act locally, uh, and and there's that. That's a very, very important truism. Um, to the extent that we have a healthy and functioning natural environment in the United States, it's because of local passions that were ignited in the 1960s that ultimately led to national protection for the environment, and in a similar fashion today city by city, county by county, state by state, a lot of change has been happening uh, around uh, protecting our air supply and, and reducing uh, carbon pollution, uh, having more efficient uh, 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 ways to use fuels to heat our homes and so forth. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I just read this the other day, I think there's 31 states that now have um, their own uh, climate change mitigation uh, uh, legislation. And it's important to do what you can locally to nudge the state system uh, here in Utah, but nudge, um, you know, here in, in town. You know, there's lots of things that can be done with any given house, any given choice of uh, uh, transportation, uh, to make a difference. And, and these things can so often seem like, oh, it's just me. It's just my own little something, nothing activity. But in fact, it counts. It's critical that piece by piece you do what you can in your world. And there are groups here in town. I, I, I'm sorry I can't remember the name of the group, but I heard about it last night at dinner. There was a meeting last night of uh, something called the Climate Action Network or some, some such title. I, I apologize for not knowing the name off the top of my head. But there are groups here in town uh, who are working on this, and I would urge you to get involved. But, all, you know, just at the level of boring little things like how much heat is getting wasted out of your house, you can go down to Home Depot and for a couple of bucks you can rent a camera for a couple hours and go do a heat survey of all the, the heat leaks in your house and you can caulk those leaks and change window panes and stuff like that and make a difference. And that's really all you get when you go through your life and you look back at your life all you get is the satisfaction of being able to look in the mirror and be able to say, I did what I could with my skills and my tools and my powers and my world. You know, even an Obama or a Vladimir Putin can't single-handedly change the world. All they can do is use the levers that they have, and I'm encouraging you to use the levers that you have. Thanks, Jeff. It was Thank you. Okay, thank you for that that question. Uh, the, you know, it's as Jeff said, that's it's cliched, but that's the bottom line, isn't it? That that's, is the that's bottom the real line. question. Critical, what, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to get into the the climate change debate that's that's raging. It's in the film. There, you know, there's clips from uh, Rush Limbaugh, and Sean Hannity, and and others. In fact, there's there's one scene where you have your laptop computer and you're watching. I don't know. Somebody, you know, deny climate change, and your your frustration levels is rising. Um, but where do you where is the lever there? 
uh, in terms of, uh, you know, convincing those that aren't convinced. I, I, I find that it's actually fruitless to try and convince certain people with certain ideological um, uh, reflexes of this because they are they're locked in their ideology. Um, the there's a there's a really serious problem in this debate about whether people are going to believe in something or are they going to look at the evidence. Uh, even in my own work, we used to talk about seeing is believing, that somehow through seeing the glaciers you were going to believe in climate change or not believe in climate change. And I've come to realize that just the basic idea of putting this subject out there in the world as a question of belief is flawed. This is not about belief. Belief is rightly something that is attached to things that have no concrete, tangible, physical, empirical evidence. Belief is, like, for example, um, where did the Earth come from? Why is humanity here in the middle of the galaxy floating around in outer space? Where are we going after we die? Those are questions that rightly belong to belief systems because there are no answers to them. There are no concrete answers. There are belief-driven answers, but that's all there is. The, on the other hand, changes in the, the Earth's natural system are real world. They're measurable. You can, you can see them. You can accumulate measurements of them. You can graph them. You can see them change through time. Those are concrete physical facts. That's evidence. That's evidence just as specifically as police collect when they go to check out what happened at a, at a particular scene. Um, so to me, climate change, what, what I say to people is come and see the evidence. I've spent 20 years looking at oh, layers and layers and layers of scientific evidence. And I bring my own specific photographic evidence to it, but my photographic evidence is founded on decades and decades of scientific collection of knowledge and the work of thousands of women and men all around the world looking at these different subjects. So the point is, don't come to our work or a scientist's work with your belief system. Check your belief system at the door and look at the evidence. And I, I think that if people look at the evidence, they go, geez, wow, this is really amazing. And I've had many people in, the, in my audiences come up to me after a show and say, geez, I thought this was just a lot of hooey. I thought this was like left liberal Al Gore talk, you know, about climate change, whatever. And I don't like, I don't like those kinds of people, so I, I disbelieved it. But your story, I understand that. I get that. In fact, I had that very reaction from a— a, a guy down at the University of Utah a few years ago, a guy who had laid oil and gas pipeline all across the American West. He came up to me afterwards, a very a tall, rangy guy in a denim jacket and a John Deere cap, and he said, young man, and not, not many people call me a young man anymore, <laughs> but said, young man, I, I, I really thought this was, uh, this was all a fiction, but now I, I hear your story and I see your evidence and I, and I get it. So mm. it's about the evidence. Mm. Now keep your eyes and your mind open to the evidence, and, and it's hard to, hard to avoid an understanding. I just have a couple of minutes left. Um, uh, I wonder what your 
it's a guess as what's <clears throat> going to happen, right? Is enough action going to be taken? Or, you know, what's what's going to happen? That uh, uh, this is uh, happening on a global scale. Um, what do you, what do you think? Is 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 your record, photographic record, going to be uh, you know sort of an obituary or? Or, or is something more positive going to happen? Well, I think it's a step on, on a path of, of uh, intellectual evolution of, of global society because it's, it's had a, the, the work has had a global uh, expression and a global uh, uh, ability to, uh, to change opinions. But the, the bigger question you're asking is, is society going to rise to the challenge or are we going to be so bogged down in our uh, status quo uh, historical behaviors that we won't be able to change enough uh, fast enough. And of course, that's the, that's the trillion dollar question. Um, I, uh, there are days when I'm profoundly pessimistic. I see the political paralysis. You look at the fact that we've got 150 years of burning certain kinds of fuels and the, all the infrastructure that's built up with that, and it's hard to change that system. It's awfully difficult to change that system. On the positive side, there is clearly a growing, uh, there has been a rapidly growing understanding that uh, nature is speaking. People get that now, um, that things need to change. And there are great fortunes that are in the process of being made through making these technological changes, Elon Musk being the most prominent one of those. Um, but uh, there's great new opportunities here, and there's a real need for this. And I, and I think it's demonstrably clear that we're seeing the global um, perception of this changing. I mean, you couldn't have a better example of that than Pope Francis um, speaking about this quite uh, uh vehemently the past several months, including last week on the East Coast. Um, when you start having figures of that magnitude saying, hey, we've got to pay attention to this, things can and will change, I believe. We'll uh, end it there. We've been talking with James Baylog, who is a photographer. He's founder of the Extreme Ice Survey. That story is chronicled in the film Chasing Ice, which is available most, um, I don't it's most easily available, you were saying, on Netflix. Correct, yes. One last thought, and this answers our friend Jeff, who was asking, and I'm sure other people have the same question. I think the short answer is, when what can I do? The answer is, use your voice. Mm. And your voice, in a, in a specific sense about telling the story, but your voice in terms of how you spend your money, how you spend your life, and you make a difference in your own world. We appreciate uh, uh, James Baylock being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. For, for Thank coming you. In. Um, let's hear whatever time we have left here, uh, if any. Let's uh, hear uh, just a bit of uh, clip number four. This is from Chasing uh, Ice, and it's this large calving event, large, largest recorded uh, glacier recession. This is the size of Manhattan. A little bit of this. The calving face is 300, sometimes 400 feet tall. Pieces of ice were shooting up out of the ocean 600 feet and then falling. The only way that you can really try to put it into scale with human references is if you imagine Manhattan. And all of a sudden, all of those buildings just start to rumble and quake and peel off and just 
fall over and fall over and roll around. This whole massive city just breaking apart in front of your eyes. We're just observers, these two little dots on the side of the mountain. And we watched and recorded the largest witness caving event ever caught on tape. So how big was this calving event that we just looked at? We'll resort to some illustrations again to give you a sense of scale. It's as if the entire lower tip of Manhattan broke off, except that the thickness, the height of it, is equivalent to buildings that are two and a half or three times higher than they are. That's a magical, miraculous, horrible, scary thing. I don't know that anybody's really seen the miracle and horror of that. This week in This American Life, there's this little community radio station in a small town in Syria. But in the current war, this town is run by extremist Islamists who decided that it was offensive for women's voices to be on the air. So? They disguised them. An incredible and unusual look inside Syria during this war as seen through this little radio station. Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.